Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to this beautiful day in the Zendo. <coughs> uh, I think um, some of you may know, many, may, many of you may know, many, some of you may not know. Um, my mother passed away uh, wait, a week ago, almost now, on Sunday morning. And so I thought I would dedicate this talk to her and to uh, everyone who is either a mother or a father, and actually anyone who has had a mother or a father. <laughs> so that includes everyone, <laughs> all of us, right? And. Um, as I probably don't need to tell you, these relationships can be very complicated. <laughs> they can be very clear. And um, there's nothing quite like birth and death to make things very crystal clear, in my experience. A lot of the, the detritus of our of our minds and habit energy and our bodies can kind of come, uh, come to a point where it falls away, literally, right? But in those around as well, as, uh, as the immensity of one's life and the ending of one's life approaches, right? I had the very good fortune of being able to convince my mother, who was living in Baltimore up until Ju this past June by herself, uh, convincing her to come move to Austin uh, so that I could be closer to her and take care of her um, in ways that I, would not, I was not able to do from, from here. So frequently I would fly up and take care of her for brief periods of time, but knowing that she had a terminal illness, she was diagnosed with um, stage four liver cancer and liver failure, uh, cirrhosis of the liver, uh, a year ago to the day that she died, actually. So I was very fortunate to be able to bring her to Austin and then even more fortunate for her and for me to have a community of practitioners who welcomed her in the Sangha. She didn't really show up for much. She was, you know, she had her intentions. She wanted to uh, be able to offer some of the things that she has learned in her lifetime. In particular, she was curious and interested in um, dusting off her Ikebana skills and, of course, her calligraphy skills but she didn't have a chance to. There's a, uh, um, there's a book written, I don't remember when, probably in the 80s. It's a sequel to the book Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. The sequel is called The Speaker for the Dead. Anyone here know that book? A couple people? great book, but it's about, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but what the speaker for the dead refers to is the main character in the first book, his name is Ender, uh, 
ends up becoming, after the first book is all said and done and the, the giant war has happened with the aliens, and, uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, they defeat they defeat the entire alien colony, which is a hive has a hive mentality. So, you get to the you know the queen, and the rest the workers are kind of you know pulled out of commission. So the main character, the hero at the end, who who saves humanity from the uh, uh, this alien invasion, actually comes to ter- has to come to terms with the fact that he has committed genocide against an entire alien species. But thankfully for him, there's a, there's one, uh, a, a cocoon, I guess. Is it a, a larva? Yeah, a larva. A larva, a baby alien that is going to, you know, that's, that's survived. And in his, uh, his mission becomes to find a suitable home for this alien species. But what he ends up doing is going off and doing a lot of interstellar travel and going to other alien uh, planets and you're all like, where is this going? (laughs) (laughs) But what Ender ends up becoming is a speaker for, uh, for one who is departed. And the, the position of being a speaker is to take kind of as much as possible a kind of a larger perspective or an objective, whatever that is, view of a person's life, the good and the bad, the mundane and the sacred, and to deliver a eulogy, right? That is uh, speaking the truth of the person's, what the, what, who they were, what they did. So it's got this feeling of like, like, it seems very like okay. This is the this is who it is. This is the person, right? In terms of trying to come up with this broad perspective, but of course, as he's in the process of investigating the person's life, the tendrils that go off in in all directions, and the interconnected web that is all of us becomes revealed. Right? So anyway, that's why I brought it up. In terms of this idea of honoring. Uh, honoring the life of people who have gone. And the question that our practice, that I feel like our practice asks of us, is how do we do that while we're still alive, for those who are still alive? In a, we had a memorial service this past Tuesday evening for my mother She's still on the altar, and she will, uh, she'll, she'll leave the altar after this, uh, after today. Um, but we had a memorial service, and people were invited to say some words. And I hadn't thought about what I was going to say, and actually I was kind of holding on to the, my, what my brother had written. He wasn't able to be there for the memorial. But I hadn't thought about what I was going to say at this memorial service. And then at some point I just spoke, and I think, some, I think I said something like, I wouldn't have been able to do this if it weren't for this practice. And by this, I meant moving my mother to Austin from Baltimore 
setting her up in a place and then becoming her primary caretaker. And, and there's a whole lifetime of karma behind that <laughs> statement, right? I wouldn't have been able to do this without this practice. And without getting into gory details, I think my sister uh, at the memorial said uh, something like, I'm not sure if this is actually what she said, so I apologize to her if this isn't accurate. But I think she said something like, she was a difficult woman, <laughs> or something along those lines. And interestingly, when she said it, I felt uplifted. Because as a true speaker for the dead would do, it would be the good and the bad, what we call good and bad. It would be the fullness, the wholeness of one's lifetime, of one's energy, not, not the, the kind of Facebook version, right, of the social media version of like, oh yeah, everything's wonderful, right? But when I did say that this practice, I, after I said it, I, it, I guess I kind of uh, surprised myself in saying it, but then after, afterwards I reflected on what was that inside that came out in that expression, right? Now, so I, um, this is going to be a very personal talk because I'm gonna be talking about stories uh, from my, my childhood, my life, um, just a few. So I apologize if this is your first time here and you're like, who is this person? And <laughs> <laughs> but um, I hope there's something, something in it that uh, is valuable. So my mother was the one who uh, taught me how to meditate. Well, she didn't teach me how to meditate, but she's the one who is responsible for my meditating life. In the, in the form of, um, she took me to a... Uh, a seminar on how to learn how to tr do transcendental meditation when I was about 14. And uh, I knew nothing about meditation. I'd never heard of it. We were actually watching a horror movie late at night that she had woken me up for because she didn't want to watch it alone. <laughs> and um, we watched this. I mean, remember the, the movie was called The Gates of Hell. And it was like one of these gore films with like people like the gates of hell were thrown open and it meant that you know the end of the world was coming and uh, it was very gory and anyway, so we watched this movie late in the night and then at the end of the movie it, it switched to uh, like an infomercial half an hour infomercial on transcendental meditation <laughs> <laughs> so we were just sitting in the living room and we watched it and then uh, and then at the end my mom turns to me and she says, would you like to learn how to meditate? I was like, sure, yeah, absolutely. Save the world? I mean, it was like, you know, I don't know if you've seen the transcendental meditation kind of spiel, but it's, you know, it's very much uh, kind of like a bodhisattva vow feeling to it of, you know, if everybody meditated, the world would be so different, right? It'd be so, uh, so much more peaceful. People wouldn't get as angry at each other. They'd forgive each other more when they did get angry, right? So it's kind of like this, this vision of world harmony. So of course, I'm, I'm like, sign me up. So we went and learned, both of us did. We learned how to do meditation. And I was given a mantra, and a, you know, a secret mantra that only I, I'm supposed to know. But 
uh, later found out you can look it up online, <laughs> your, your mantra, you know. Uh, but um, anyway, so we learned how to do it together, and then we tried doing it together, actually. And it's very informal, the, the tradition of, uh, you know, when they, I guess when they teach people, it's kind of, well, I don't know if that's true. I was going to say, it's kind of like here, you're not given a lot of instruction other than just very basic instruction. And then you go and you're kind of thrown in and you do it. And then if you have questions, you talk to people who have, uh, are more experienced at practice. So anyway, I, I learned how to do it, and my mom and I tried doing it together. We would just sit on chairs in the living room, and uh, for 20 minutes, the instruction was basically just a closed eyes, you know, a comfortable seat. But you're like, you know, sitting in a, on a couch or an armchair, so it's a little different from Zen practice. Um, and then you recite your mantra, and as you're reciting your mantra, thoughts appear and disappear. Sound familiar? Very similar, right? Instead of, but we don't use mantras uh, in this school, but we do usually start with uh, counting or watching the breath, right? And then thoughts appear and disappear. And sometimes thoughts don't disappear they, so well, right? Or as quickly as we want them to. Or we become uh, swept up in those thoughts and we forget that we're actually paying attention to our breathing or to our mantra. Well, watching my mother in this process of learning how to meditate and then trying to apply it, right? she was really keen on it. She thought it would be helpful for her. But the opposite actually happened for her. When she tried to meditate, she couldn't do it before, too long before she would start to cry in her meditation. Like a couple minutes, not even, not even a few minutes. And it became very disturbing to, you know, it, from, my, from my perspective, it was like, I'm sitting here, like, you know, in my mind, reciting my mantra, and it's kind of exciting and interesting and then boring, and, you know, why am I doing this? You know, the whole range, except that my mom's range was zero to 60 into a lot of sadness and grief. And she didn't talk about it much, but she stopped meditating. And she said, basically, I can't do this. It's too, too hard. And when she described what, what happened in her mind, she described that when she sat down to meditate, the thoughts that would come were so um, you know, filled with regrets and filled with disappointments. And, oh, it should have been this way, or that happened and it shouldn't have happened. Or just, I think, I think made, mainly regret or grief. And so when she, and she didn't have a, it wasn't, like when we learned how to do this, it was, there was no kind of, there's a seminar where they teach you, but then it, there was no real community of practitioners. There's no sangha to uh, converse with about practice. It's kind of like she was, you know, on her own. She had a 14 year old daughter <laughs> who was, you know, happily chanting my mantra. <laughs> but I had, you know, I couldn't help her in her grief or in the process, I, I think, I, you know, I tried to be encouraging of her because my feeling was, surely this is something that's very natural that you would just, you, the whole point of meditation is that you allow this to come and you allow it to go. I mean, even at 14 with learning transcendental meditation from like, from a, the starts of an infomercial, like I knew that much, right? However, it's so much harder 
to do it than to say it. And she struggled with it. And despite all the encouragement that I, you know, I tried to give her to sit together, eventually she just completely quit. She was not able to. And um, anybody have that experience that meditation, where meditation, the, the practice of meditation has become overwhelming? You you have had you've had patience. patience. Yeah. So I think all of us have had meditations. Have you ever been on the cushion for a period of meditation and then jumped off and run out the room? <laughs> yeah. Right. What is that? Right. What is that? That. What's being tapped into, or. You know what is, opened or softened, or hardened, or what is the adjective that describes it? My brother was in town this week as well. Um, he only was able to come out for one day, so he came out on Monday and left on Tuesday. Um, he just wanted to see my mother before she was uh, interred, and so he did. He got to spend some time uh, sitting at her bedside after she passed. Um, but he was telling me, at one point while we were driving somewhere here in Austin, he told me that he had a friend who, he, th he said, I have a friend who meditates. I think she goes on these retreats. And he didn't know idea what kind of retreat it was, what kind of Buddhism. But he said, you know, I think that she goes somewhere where she doesn't talk for like a long time. And it's very strict, like you can't talk. And he thought that was kind of appalling. But, you know, he asked me, he asked me, he's like, why would somebody do that? And, and he asked her why she did it. And, um, and she said, I don't know. I don't know why. And he said, that was the dumbest thing. He's like, I can't <laughs> how could she not say what, you know, it must not be, it must not be meaningful because she can't find the words, right? It's, it's kind of how he took it. And, and I'm listening to this, you know, him describe this and his, um, his confusion about his friend and why she would, why on earth she would do something like that, where she couldn't even explain what it was. And, you know, he's like, I can understand if it's like makes her feel peaceful or it's, you know, it gives, it adds to her life in some way. But like, think of how many hours she's devoting to this silence that, you know, she could be doing all kinds of things in her life. <laughs> And so he was, you know, he was describing this, and when he told me her response of, I don't know why I do it, and yet, and he said, do you think you'll do it again? And he said, she said, yeah, I think I probably will, but I'm not sure, but I think I will. He's like, but why would you do it if you don't know why you're doing it? <laughs> She's like, I'm not sure. But he said, he, basically, she couldn't really come up with the words. Right. And so his, his take on that was, oh, I don't really trust what she's up to then, because she can't, if she can't give an explanation, then it, you know, right? you know how this comes up in us, right? If you don't have the words for it, if we can't explain it, then it must not be true, or we doubt ourselves, or we doubt the person. So anyway, when he's describing this, what, I was, what was going on internally for me was, yeah, yeah, she's got it. She doesn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of you know coming back to your breath or coming back to the present moment, what this body mind 
is experiencing, is feeling, um, the psychophysical, I don't know how, yeah, it's very, it's very challenging to describe. But when we open ourselves to it, which is no small feat, in some ways, it's actually very easy to open oneself to this physical, psychophysical nexus of activity, right? We just stop doing anything else. Stop doing anything else and just be. Sound terrifying yet? <laughs> how do you do that? So I think that when my mom was learning how to meditate, it was as if, this is my, my take on it years later, and actually at the time as well, my take on it was there was this internal kind of hand that went up to feeling experience. Right? This hand, it's like, no, I don't want to feel that. And she was really good at that. She's, you know, in, in her words, towards the end, I think she described it as, I want to maintain a positive attitude. And she even said to me at one point, if I can't maintain a positive attitude, then everything's going to come crashing down and I won't be able to function at all. So her maintaining a positive attitude, in some ways, uh, it was both positive and negative. It had, you know, it had positive effects and it had negative effects. And like Ender in his in being the speaker for the dead, he didn't pass judgment. His job was not to pass judgment whatsoever. Whatsoever. Right? But to open to the fullness and complexity of, and the wholeness of one's life in body, speech, and mind. Um, I, I struggled quite a bit uh, with my mom growing up and actually ran away from home at least once and then when I turned 17 I moved out as quickly as I could from, from living at home and I uh, kind of didn't spend very much time at home after I moved out, uh, especially after going to a monastery. I went into a monastery for 10 years, and so I was not available by phone. There was no internet, there was no computers. This is back in the good old days of Sahara. <laughs> <laughs> there are now computers. But uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't so uh, uh, accessible. But interestingly, after I moved in to Tassahara, I actually developed a stronger relationship with my mom. Like I wrote letters. <laughs> so no phone calls, no emails, no texting, but uh, an occasional letter, I would write letters. And we actually got closer after I was far farther away, which was kind of nice. Um, the idea, the notion, so for those of you who don't know, my mom is comes from a comes from Japan, she's Japanese, she was Japanese, and her very culturally Japanese. 
Um, and from a time that's kind of feudal Japan. She was born in 1937. She herself was <coughs> seven years old during World War II and lost her house uh, to fire. There was conventional bombing of Tokyo, which uh, destroyed a lot of people's properties, a lot of lives. So she came from a very, er like a very different, very different culture. Like Japanese culture in general, I think is, you know, pretty different now in modern times. There's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of nuances and intricacies to every culture. But back, especially back then, pre, uh, what would you call it, that happened in Japan, modernization, pre-modernization of Japan. And the idea of uh, filial piety is something that I have struggled with my whole life, I think. The feeling of duty to your family. Does anyone have that strong feeling, a strong feeling of duty, familial duty? Yeah. Yeah, and it's also a doubled-edged sword, right? It's got its thing, that the, the amazing things about having a family, the support of having a family. The, the love that's shared between family members, the unconditional love. I think that's one, even though there's so many things that were conditional in my relationship with my mother, I think, there was an underlying unconditionality, which my brother spoke about in, in his words at her memorial as well. It's unconditional love, which I think, uh, which I felt. However, <laughs> there's the, the realm of the conditional and the unconditional. And I think when we tap into our practice, we touch that unconditional realm in a way that when we're amidst the nuts and bolts of our life, we can get caught up in those um, and forget the heart. Right? The busy mind, the doing of, our, of one's life, the taking care of things, and um, getting sucked into worldly, what you call worldly affairs, dramas, the dramas of a lifetime. The things that as one's life approaches the end, one hopes that there is some letting go of those things. One hopes. But in terms of this filial piety, I have to say that I rebelled strongly against it as a, you know, being raised in the United States with an American father and a Japanese mother. She didn't, you know, she, looking back, she had a hard time. She had a really hard time being in this culture and being like the only one, <laughs> right? It would have been one thing if she had uh, siblings or other family members, Japanese relatives that lived in America with her, but she didn't. Um, But for me, I, um, yeah, I wondered about what my, what my duty was to family, to my mother in particular, um, and what my duty was to my practice, to my meditation, to awakening, to the project of taking on vows 
to be of benefit to all beings. Because um, I think my mother was very, let's see, how would I say it? When I got involved in Buddhism, she was very disappointed. I will say that. She, uh, she was, yeah, so she, you know, she's the one who started the meditation, right? She started me on this meditation path, but then as uh, years went on, I did, it, I did other things in my life besides meditating, studied philosophy and biology, and, and then eventually, when I was in my late, mid, mid-20s, mid to late 20s, I decided that I wanted to move into a Zen center and practice more uh, full-time, well, yeah, devote more of my daily life to practice, right? And then I wanted to ordain, and that really freaked her out, because in Japan, Buddhism is about death. It's the Shinto's, the tradition that does all the birth ceremonies and the marriages and the, you know, the festivals and and the Buddhists you know they're they're pretty much about death <laughs> so she thought so 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 her her view was and she had some Buddhism in her family she was Shinto and Buddhist and then she converted to Catholicism so she kind of had a wide range but um, the idea of filial piety was something that I felt like there was this constant feeling of wanting to run away from home run away from filial piety, from this idea of duty, and at the same time uh, feeling like I couldn't just run away, or just I couldn't keep running away. You know, I had to do, it wasn't even conscious, but internally there was something that wanting to be there, or not even wanting to, just feeling like, well, I must. There's not even a feeling of like, well, this is something I have to do, it's my duty. It's more like, something instilled in me that just said, well, this is what you do, right? You take care. But I spent a long time kind of pushing against that and railing against it, actually, right? It's like, ah, I'm not going to do that internally, right? But then when the time comes, it's like, you're just there. Right? That's kind of my experience of it. But there was this one story in our uh, story of our one of our ancestors in the Zen school that I was kind of haunted by the story of Fuyo Dokai, who's a bridge ancestor holding two traditions, two, 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 the Rinzai and the Soto traditions. Okay. But anyway, the story about him that I had heard was that when he was, uh, he was a monk, his mother was a very controlling person and wanted to kind of be in his life and and um, and he had a seemed like I had a hard time in the story with boundaries with his mother and in the story he's meditating and she's uh, distraught that he's not spending time with her or something and she's ill and instead of leaving the hall the room the meditation room so he closes her out of the meditation hall so that he can sit and he's locked her out. And the image is that she's so distraught that he's not letting her in that she's wailing at the door. She's crying and she's banging on the door and begging him, begging him to please let her in. 
and he sits. And he just sits in meditation, fully feeling, I assume, fully feeling the complex emotions that are arising within him. But he doesn't open the door. He doesn't kind of give in to her wishes. Instead, he's praying for her well-being. He's praying for her salvation. But he's not going to her and tending to her in the way that she wants him to. And she dies. She dies outside. Not in his arms. Not with her son holding her hand. Right? So this story was haunting to me as a, as a, well, as a young Zen kid, which probably in my 20s, but when I first read the story, it was quite haunting to me. And then there's a, a, a verse that comes with it, which I will... Okay, so Fuyodokai said, when the karmic sounds of bells and drums are not heard, a single sound awakens the one in the dream. Perfect eternal stillness has no extra affairs. Who says Kuan Yin offers some other gate? I'll read it again. When the karmic sounds of bells and drums are not heard, a single sound awakens the one in the dream. So that's us, the one in the dream. Perfect eternal stillness has no extra affairs. Who says Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, offers some other gate? So the story of Fuyodokai not seeing his, like not opening the door like that, for some reason, there's something very so remarkable of that, that lack of a gesture to not open the door when someone is pounding at it. And I could not do that. <laughs> I feel like I could not do that. And so, but is this, you know, is it appropriate? Is it inappropriate? What is the story teaching us? Or what is it trying to convey? There's a, there's a follow-on to it, which is, that after her death, he held the memorial service for her. And some time after she passed, uh, she came to him in a dream and thanked him. Because the power of his chanting and taking that time not to physically give her what she needed, what she wanted, but to pray for her eternal rest she thanked him for that because she was now residing in Tushita heaven. Which, had she not, I mean, I think the, the idea is that had she not, um, or had Fuyodokai gone to her and tended to her, that somehow that would, something would not be purified. Now, I remember being, you know, a Zen student reading this story and being like, oh, that's such a, you know, crock of something, right? It's like, how is that possible? Like, that just seems selfish, right? Or it seems 
like it lacks in compassion, right? And so the story was, was like I said, it was haunting to me. And um, just so, just so you're, you all know, in Zen stories, there's no right answer, right? There's no, like, oh, this is what the story means. Actually, the, the beauty and the meat of these stories, of Zen stories, is in how you relate to them and how they sink into the flurry that is your life, right? And your experience and how they inform and change and uh, challenge our fixed views about how, the way things are or the way I am or the way you are, right? These stories that we make up. So when the karmic sounds of bells and drums are not heard, when the karmic sounds are not heard, right? What is the karmic sounds of our life? Do you have a sense of that? Like if you could name one karmic sound in your life, <laughs> what would it be? Anyone? Boring. Boring? Worry. Worry. Needing. Needing? Duty. Duty. Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> yeah, the resonant gong. <laughs> ah. right. What makes them karmic? These sounds. That they were constructs. That they're constructs? Mind constructs. The filters that we wear, the glasses that we wear, right? Yes? Did oh, that, I, that they repeat themselves. Ah, mm-hmm. yes, that they repeat themselves. They're patterned, habitual. It pertains to the history of my own actions and the actions of others. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're set in the context of act, action. Unresolved. Karma, the karmic sounds are unresolved. Yeah. They're repeating, they're habitual, they're... <coughs> What's the big one? Well, they're very strong, and they're like... They're holding on to us like tendrils, strong tendrils. What are they based on? Greed, hate, and delusion. Grasping aversion. Grasping aversion, <laughs> greed, hate, delusion. Haunting, I mean, they, they, they haunt you. They haunt us. Ancestral karma. Ancestral karma, right? When the karmic sounds of bells and drums are not heard, a single sound awakens the one in the dream. So the one in the dream, as I said, is us. It's anyone who is who believes that the karmic tendrils, these strong echoes of greed, hate, and delusion that uh, are in constant churn from beginningless time prior to our own existence and will continue after us, these habitual self-based delusions, when those are not heard, when they're not heard, these these sounds, these karmic sounds, then a single sound awakens the one in the dream. 
So awakening the one in the dream, you've all had this experience where you've woken up before and realized that something unpleasant was happening and it was a dream, right? I'm not sure that enlightenment is quite like that, but uh, maybe, maybe you can tell me what it is like in terms of those, those mini enlightenments where we wake up and um, what does it feel like? Are we elated? Are we jumping up and down? Is it, does it feel like uh, being in a bliss realm? No. It's kind of ordinary sometimes, right? It's feeling just like, oh, this nagging thing or this swirl of thought and activity and um, ideas, concepts, doesn't have as much weight, doesn't have as much of a pull. And there's a feeling, an internal feeling of relaxing, right? Maybe a little sigh. And then maybe nothing, not a lot of activity, but just some rest, some quality of being. Just, just being, simple, very simple. The single sound awakens the one in the dream. Perfect eternal stillness has no extra affairs. Can you imagine having uh, perfect eternal stillness and not having extra, uh, any extra affairs? Anyone have any plans for the weekend? Just like, let them go. No extra affairs. <laughs> Just be. What would it be like to have no external extra affairs? Yeah, can always be there and what we notice what we uh, what we decide if that's the right word what we put our energy into what we put our intention towards we can stop at any time right the sounds of bells and drums we can we it's in our uh, our scope to at any moment stop the swirl and breathe, and be, and feel present. The mother knocking on the door. Yes, Sherry. I think Thich Nhat Hanh refers to that taking care of the present moment. Taking care of the present moment. Right, and so if you take care of the present moment, it's not, you don't have to dwell in what happened Eternal stillness has no extra affairs. Eternal stillness is now. It's available at any moment. Just let go of all the things that jump in the way and say, look at me, I'm more important than eternal stillness. <laughs> right? 
so so juicy and uh, tantalizing, right? Our stories of past, future, what should I do? Who, how should I be? What's the correct thing to do? I mean, these are not, you know, bad things to ask oneself, right? But eventually, the uh, the eternal stillness that comes out, that's there, that comes out, that's always there, right, is revealed when we look at it right? at any moment. And then the last line here, who says Quan Yin offers some other gate? Who says that Quan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, offers some other gate besides this touching what's always present, letting the things that are uh, distracting, distracting, letting them fall away, not getting rid of them necessarily, right? but not responding to them, not being dragged around by them, these sounds of bells and drums. So in Fuyo Dokai's case, and of course I'm, you know, I have no idea what, how much of this story is apocryphal or who Fuyo Dokai really was, but the fact that he placed, or the fact that Kuan Yin is placed in this verse, that's very intriguing to me. This idea of compassion, when we look at compassion, we think it, mm, oftentimes, I think, we think it looks a particular way, right? It looks like someone maybe patting you on the back and saying, they're there, right? Or would you like a candy? Right. Let me kiss it and make it better. There are all kinds of ways to show compassion. And then there's this other way, this other, uh, perfect eternal stillness has no extra affairs. When Fuyo Dokai did not step up from his cushion to open the door to let his mother in, was that a compassionate act? I never thought it was, and I don't. I still don't know. <laughs> yes, that. Well, what, what, what the story doesn't say is all of the times before then when he tried something different. You know, it really could be that in this particular case, that was all that was left to do. And perhaps she wore out his counter-transference. <laughs> you know? Like, re really, sometimes in certain cases, it just, you know, that, oh, well, let's step back into this and enact this mm. terrible fantasy of abandonment yeah. with this other person. In, in this yeah. Case with this person at that time. It was years in the making, not just, here's compassion, I'm going to be the Zen monk guy, not give a shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably not that, especially because you wrote that verse. And I think that verse is proof that it actually was arrived at after a long yeah. karmic. Yeah, yeah. And who is to say? Yes. I think he was employing wisdom. You know, which is equally important. 
oftentimes seen as the uh, the other side of compassion. Right. Yeah. He knew what she really needed. Right, and it's so hard to say it when we hear that, like those words. Oh, I know better than you what you need. It's like, yes, Dave. In some ways, he the karmic relationship he just battled with internally before she was gone, where most of us battle it. Yes, yes. Yes, and looking back at the story from the perspective that I'm in today, less than one week from the moment my mother died, when I look at this story, you know, the questions that I have, like, I could, I could have done more. I could have been there more. I could have been there, you know, like, the, the challenge uh, of the past several weeks has been how do I show up and be there for her while at the same time having other responsibilities. Like, how do I wholeheartedly do, do it, right? How do I do it wholeheartedly? without feeling divided, because I definitely felt divided. How do you do something holy when you feel divided? Right? This is a huge part of our practice. This is, you know, when we come and sit on a cushion, we come with our div- all of our dividedness. Right? And when we sit, we're giving us a- ourselves the gift of being able to be with all of it as it's there. It's hard sometimes, I, you know, to carve out the time, right? Because as my brother uh, was saying about his, his friend who's sitting, it's like, why wouldn't you do something else with your life instead of staring at a wall, right? Why do you, especially if it's something that's not, you don't even know why you're doing it. You know, is it beneficial? I don't know. <laughs> but something's there. Something is revealed, that's beyond these, uh, these sounds of, uh, the karmic sounds of bells and drums, right? Something is revealed in that eternal stillness that's available to us at any moment if we just take the moment. We can take the moment. Breath after breath. So... I'll read it one last time, this verse. When the karmic sounds of bells and drums are not heard, a single sound awakens the one in the dream. Perfect eternal stillness has no extra affairs. Who says Kuan Yin offers some other gate? And as many Zen teachers would say to any expression of truth, that's about 80%. There's another 20% there. What's the flip side of this? I'll leave that with you. (laughs) Thank you very much.